Marie Evans. You're listening to Radio 3 at 6.30. Ladies star on the weather, mainly fine overnight with isolated showers tomorrow. Some sunshine around as well. Minimum temperature 28 degrees, maximum 33 and moderate southwesterly winds. The outlook more showery in the following few days. Currently 32 degrees, humidity at 66%. And it's time now for Harvey Stockwin's Reflections from Asia. The 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Uprising and the Beijing Massacre has finally arrived. Two top Chinese communist leaders were involved on the side of the students, Hu Yaobang inadvertently, Zhao Ziyang purposefully. Hu Yaobang's reformist zeal when he was General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party gave students hope that democratic reform was possible, the more so when Hu, sacked by Deng Xiaoping in 1987, died in April 1989, just as the Tiananmen demonstrations were gathering momentum. But after 1987, there was 16 years of silence before Hu Yaoban finally ceased to be officially a non-person within China. Even then, Hu was commemorated briefly, timidly, woodenly and politically. In a sense, Hu stayed a non-person. The question remains, what kind of a person was he? What did he really accomplish? I have found two stimulating answers to those questions. Quote, on the afternoon of the 15th of April 1989, amidst the preparations for our party to bid farewell to our personal friends, the office called to announce the death of Hu Yaobang. My husband, Winston Lord, had met the former party secretary at an intimate dinner in Zhongnanhai, the sanctum where China's revolutionary leaders live like royalty behind high garden walls. I had not. Out of power since 1987, when he was formally removed from the party's top post by Deng Xiaoping at the urging of the conservatives, Hu Yaobang was that rarity among Chinese leaders. He was himself. He departed from the text. He succumbed to emotions. He was interested and interesting. A tiny man, shorter even than his mentor Deng. He literally and figuratively seemed to jump about. Sometimes he teetered on the giddy, as when, in the pursuit of hygiene, he advocated that the Chinese chuck their chopsticks and use forks instead. Sometimes he charged into forbidden zones, as when in the pursuit of rectitude he attacked corruption at the pinnacles of the party. These qualities both endeared him to and alienated him from Chinese, one and the same Chinese. Since the reforms had begun, a decade before, Chinese had been, if anything, ambivalent. They were disgusted by the righteous masks that officials wore to hide their human face, yet they were used to having their leaders look a certain way. From the reign of the first emperor to the supremacy of Mao, the correct demeanour had been remote, rigid and reticent. These were hardly adjectives to describe Hu Yabang. Knowing of Chinese ambivalence, I did not expect his departure to affect our party that evening, or China that spring. I had forgotten that death prettifies. True in any culture, this is especially true in a culture rooted in Confucianism, which accepts form the more malleable in lieu of content. 
to Confucius, the consummate realist, proper conduct, the more knowable, was the measure of a man. To ask mere mortals to discipline their thoughts as well as their actions would be asking too much. Form would suffice. And so Chinese embraced ritual, the ultimate form. Mourning became the ultimate ritual. Chinese mourned extravagantly, even in the era of the consummate ideologues who measured man above all by his thoughts. They continued to do so. Thus, extravagant mourning, urged by tradition and tolerated by the party, provided an occasion for students who sincerely grieved at the passing of the man pushed out of power by the conservatives to publicly parade their sorrow as well as their concerns for China. The young mourners elected Hu Yaobang their hero, and in death the former party secretary became a champion of democracy ten feet tall. Unquote. These insights were written by Bet Bao Lord, wife of then U.S. Ambassador to China Winston Lord, in her book Legacies, a Chinese Mosaic. I particularly like her perception that Hu was himself. He departed from the text. He was interested and interesting. To the extent that the Chinese communist system allowed it, Hu Yaobang was a modern politician, projecting a human image. He was the opposite of the colourless da apparatchiks who dominate Chinese politics, and he wasn't all that giddy either. Whose point that everyone's chopsticks dipping into the communal bowl was a questionable practice health-wise seemed medically sensible during the SARS outbreak, and it will seem so again if, heaven forbid, there is a flu pandemic. But I have often wondered if who so aroused nationalistic sentiments with his critical comments on chopsticks that he thereby contributed to his own downfall. When Chinese President Hu Jintao and the Standing Committee of the Politburo decided earlier in 2005 to commemorate Hu Yaobang's 90th birthday, therefore in effect rehabilitating him, it was not with the intention of demonstrating his essential humanity, nor was it intended to encourage a livelier style of CCP politics. Given China's closed and secretive system, it is, of course, impossible to know what was the precise motivation for that move. Conceivably, the reformist wing of the CCP may have been restive. Hu Jintao may have wished to placate it. It is tempting to assume that a few weeks after former General Secretary Zhao Ziyang had died, the Standing Committee may have wanted to make up for the brusque and insensitive way in which that event was handled. But that's probably to look at Chinese politics with non-Chinese eyes. For the top CCP leadership, the fact that Zhao died and was buried without arousing any outpouring of dissent was a great success. In the same way, it seems unlikely that President Hu sponsors the Hu Yaobang Memorial in order to improve his image because within China, no one and no media critics are telling him that his image needs improving. Perhaps the most likely motive for the rehabilitation is that Hu Yaobang was a popular leader of the Communist Youth League and was a mentor of Hu Jintao, for whom the CYL became his power base. In this way, it's logical that President Hu should revive Hu Yaobang's standing. For the outside world, of course, it is also logical that Hu Yaobang's revival indicates a first tentative move towards the long-awaited reversal of verdicts on the 1989 Tiananmen demonstrations and the Beijing massacre. 
But this is almost certainly a classic example of what seems logical outside China be intensely illogical within it. The way in which Vice President Zheng Qinghun, in his speech at the commemoration, carefully avoided the major controversies of Hu Yaobang's career and portrayed Hu as a dedicated orthodox communist clearly indicated that such a reversal of verdicts was not yet on the CCP's agenda. But whatever the CCP motivation for allowing Hu Yaobang to exist as a person once again, it was watered down by the timid way in which the decision to commemorate was implemented. In Beijing, the original plan was to have been a ceremony with 2,000 guests, a symposium to discuss Hu Yaobang's legacy, the publication of Hu's selected works, and of an officially proved biography by scholars from the Central Party School. This was reduced to merely a discussion meeting for 350 guests, at which Vice President Zeng gave the only reported speech, the publication only of the first volume of Who's Selected Works, and the shelving of the biography. The change of date enabled President Hu to be in Pusan on APEC business. He not only avoided attending the meeting, but failed to send a message to be read out at it. Liberal-minded colleagues of Hu Yaobang were not invited. President George W. Bush's one-day visit to Beijing was arranged for November the 20th, thereby diverting media attention away from Hu's 90th birthday. In Hu's hometown in Hunan province, construction work on a memorial hall was not completed in time for the anniversary, while a memorial ceremony was moved at the last moment from the hometown to the regional capital. In the nation as a whole, press and TV coverage was non-existent or minimal, while some journalists which carried academic articles on Hu Yaobang were evidently ordered to be recalled from circulation. So what had been originally hailed as President Hu Jintao's boldest move was instead handled so cautiously and timidly as to leave one wondering whether this obviously insecure Chinese Communist Party leadership would be able to handle a full-blown political crisis. Only one man rose to the occasion by trying to fit Hu Yaobang's achievements into the present political context. The irrepressible Bao Tong, who was once Zhao Ziyang's political secretary and himself went to prison for his role in the Tiananmen demonstrations, wrote an essay which was published nowhere within China and extracts were only rarely used outside it. It was a tribute to a Chinese Communist Party leader who dared to be different by a courageous man who shares the same vital quality. Here is an edited excerpt of what Bao Tong wrote. Quote, the people miss Hu Yaobang. The CCP should commemorate him. The CCP currently has tens of millions of members, good and bad, all mixed together. Some of them have brains, discrimination, passion. Others have just learned to blow with the wind. There are two sorts of attitudes to the party among them. Those who blow with the wind think that the slogan loyalty to the party is all that is meant by loyalty to the party, that it includes backing the party's mistakes, covering up murky practices by its members. This view believes that as long as it's a party decision, it's the right decision to be adhered to and implemented without the shadow of a doubt with unswerving resolve. 
The trouble with this attitude is that the party is hardly likely to be the embodiment of truth. It does a lot of good things, but it also makes some very big mistakes. That's why those with brains, discernment and passion within the party know that you can't follow its policies blindly, that you have to exercise judgment with regard to its actions, supporting and nurturing its good policies and taking issue with its mistakes. Those in the second camp take an attitude of seeking truth from facts, a logical approach. They are the people who can help save the party from its own errors. It was that sort of utter sincerity that was the hallmark of Hu Yaobang. He had no time for the darkness in the party and dedicated himself to a campaign against empty speech and overturning wrong decisions made in the past. It didn't matter whose decision it was, if it was harmful, false or unreasoned, who would toss it aside, even if it was made by Mazedong himself. While Zhao Ziyang was busy directing reforms of the economic system, Hu Yaobang ushered in a new political atmosphere where decisions once more had meaning. After the death of Mao, there were some who would shoot down any semblance of normal thinking just to show that they were the true heirs of Mao Zedong thought, and they rallied around the slogan, hold high, to try to frighten people. Hu Yaobang merely smiled and said, What are you holding high? Are you holding high a banner or are you holding up clubs? What are you about? Are you about beating people up? At the end of 1986, some of the old guard tried to pursue so-called proponents of bourgeois liberalism in the party under the guise of party discipline. But Hu Yaobang wouldn't let them get away with these sorts of shenanigans. Such a general secretary, in tune with the ordinary people, was characterized as soft by the old guard and he was ousted from power. After fearlessly overturning so many injustices against others, who himself became the victim of just such a wrong decision. When it happened, he wept, and he had good reason to weep. He was right to be worried about the Chinese people who have been through such suffering and calamity. I'm in favour of commemorating Hu Yaobang, but it should be done with the right intent. The spirit of Hu Yabang should be allowed to permeate China's political and cultural life, to sweep away the suffocating air of tyranny, corruption and hypocrisy, and create another few million Hu Yabangs. The CCP should learn a painful lesson from its treatment of Hu Yabang, and through its commemoration of him should learn once more the art of self-criticism. The only meaningful way to be worthy of Hu Yaobang, to remember Hu Yaobang, is in the spirit of Hu Yaobang. Unquote. That was Harvey Stockwin and his reflections from Asia. You can hear the programme next week at the same time. R-T-H-K, Radio 3 we continue now with How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia by Mohsin Hamid, the tale of one poor boy's pursuit of wealth and love. Today, the quest for filthy richness becomes ever more cascaresque as our hero finds himself rubbing shoulders with the big boys. The pretty girl, too, made it to the top, but love for both is not as easy. The reader is Paul Bhattacharji. Befriend a bureaucrat. No self-help book can be complete 
without taking into account our relationship with the state. States target us. States bend us. You might therefore assume that the most reliable path to becoming filthy rich is to leap into business nebulas as remote as possible from the state's imperial economic grip. But you would be wrong. No. Harnessing the state's might for personal gain is a much more sensible approach. In Rising Asia, it is on befriending the right bureaucrat that your continued success critically depends. You sit before him now, in his government office, spacious yet dowdy. The bureaucrat lights an exquisitely expensive gifted cigar from his well-appointed humidor without offering you anything but a cup of tea. He knows your type. Self-made, on the rise, and because of his education, family background, and temperament, he regards you with disdain, but also with satisfaction, for there is usually more 